who are you? Today I want to start us off by reading from John's Gospel in the first chapter. And we're going to read something of a beautiful little narrative here dealing with John the Baptist. And then we're going to speak a little bit about the season that we've entered into, the season called Lent. This is the testimony of John, the baptizer. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, Having been sent by the Pharisees, they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Lent. Have any of you ever heard that expression before? I, not, I lent you some money. Not that kind of lent, right? <laughs> the fruit from early on, the church has remembered and celebrated the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the grave. From as early as 325, the Christian church prepared itself for a 40-day period of special preparation. It's thought that the tradition may have grown from the early church practice of baptizing candidates who themselves underwent a 40-day period of fasting in preparation for their baptism at Easter. How about that? 
What do you think, Wink? We could have put you on a 40-day fast. Might not have been much of your left when we put you down in the river, but... But eventually the season evolved into a period of spiritual devotion for the whole church. And during those early centuries, the Latin fast was this very strict but practiced time of waiting on the Lord and preparing the heart, and it relaxed over time. But flash ahead some centuries, Lent is, isn't the typical thing that's practiced by many of our Western churches. But for many mainline and Orthodox churches, with the exception of the one day in the week where the church practiced Sabbath and gathered for worship, the church also has set aside 40 days leading up to, to the Easter celebration. And they prepared that. They set it aside in a time of preparation. At its core, the, the practice of Lent represents two significant accounts of spiritual testing for God's servants in our Bible. The first was a reflective of the 40 years that the Israelites wandered in the desert after their exodus from Egypt. It was their time of soul-searching, of heart-searching, of preparation and waiting to enter into the Promised Land. The second account is based on the 40 days that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God, whereupon he endured the temptations by Satan, and he prepared to begin his public ministry. In the Bible, the number 40 holds significance, doesn't it? It holds significance in terms of the measurement of time. Numbers of important events revolve around it. During the flood, it, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses fasted on Mount Horeb, or Sinai, as some of you would know it. He, he fasted on that mount for 40 days and 40 nights, and there he received the Ten Commandments from the Lord. The spies were sent into the land of Canaan, into that land promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, the promised land. They were sent in for 40 days. The prophet Elijah traveled for 40 days and nights to reach the famous Mount Horeb, where he would again inquire of the Lord. Through this week, we've entered into a season of what the First Council of Nicaea fathers uniformly confirmed as the most holy feast and celebration of Easter. This year, our Western Church began their 40 days of Lenten celebration on what day? Do you know what day that was? Last Wednesday, which was probably on a Wednesday, right? That was... Yeah, on February 26th. Now, in sort of in cooperation with the spirit of these sort of centuries-long practice, I want us to do a bit of the same. Not to exactly mirror everything, 
fasting through this previous month, I want to invite, I want all of us to invite the Spirit to, to lead us deeper. Just to continue doing that. Over these next six weeks, I, I'm praying and I'm inviting the Spirit to affect the trajectory of our lives. Just as John's eyes were open to see this Spirit descending on the world's prophesied Savior, I want the Spirit to better open our eyes and our hearts to behold the Lamb of God and takes away our sin and the sins of this world. And just as the Spirit led Jesus into the desert, I want to invite our scriptures and the Spirit to lead us into a deeper revelation of who Jesus is and who we are in Him. You pray for that to the Lord when you set aside time to read your scriptures and to pray to Him. You pray for God to open the eyes of your heart. I mean, I need Him to, quite honestly. I want Him to give us a different, deeper revelation of Jesus, of who He is, and who we are to Him. That's right. I want Jesus to give us a revelation of who we are in Him. This morning, we're going to strictly focus our attention on the witness and the testimony of John. And we're going to ask the question that was being asked of him. Who are you? Isn't that a great question? Who are you? Realize one of the most important questions that all of us need to answer at some point in our lives, don't we? Usually when we're tired and we run out of energy and it doesn't seem that things are going too smoothly. The other question that burns in all of us and burns in the hearts of people in this world is why am I here? Why on earth am I here? For the sake of today's message, I want want us to stick to the question that was being pressed upon the main character of today's scripture, John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer clearly knew who he was and who he was not, didn't he? He had a clarity about his identity and his role that positioned him to be a a powerful witness to Jesus and to his kingdom. Have you ever heard this being said lately? I want to make it quite clear that I'm not a candidate. How many times have you heard politicians, political candidates, making this claim before really catching a hold of that lure of some major political campaign. No, they're not going to stand. They're going to definitely sit this one out. And then surprise, surprise, suddenly they have a change of heart after conferring with their colleagues and their family and realizing what's good for the nation 
watch that go down. But here we have a man in John who clearly pushes back on the opportunity to be seen as someone who he is clearly not. Three times the deputized religious leaders demanded to know his identity. And three times John denied the direct nature of their questions, didn't he? He denied their presumptive identities that were being superimposed on him as they tried to figure this guy out. Who are you? And sensing the nature of their demanding introduction, John started at the top. Well, I'll tell you who I'm not. <laughs> and then he allowed everything to logistically kind of follow after that. I am not the promised Messiah. I am not the promised Messiah, the promised king from the house of David, the king that our scriptures reveal is going to come and who will eventually overthrow all injustice to rule over Israel and even this world. I'm not Elijah, who was taken up to heaven by God and who Malachi prophesied would return before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And in case you're wondering, I, I am not the prophet who you asked. I'm not. That, I'm not the prophet that God promised to raise up. But he said a day would come and was coming when he was going to raise up a prophet like Moses and raise him up from among God's own people. So they've gone through their list. Well, John, if you're not any of these, just then, who do you think you are? Who exactly are you claiming to be? Now, the religious leaders had their own reasons for wanting to keep tabs on people. I mean, they had to, they had to protect what God had given them. They had to make sure that there weren't any crazies out there who were trying to be something that they were, but that they were clearly were not, and maybe potentially even upset how everything was running. Because it was running really well. Well, sort I mean, they clearly won't, weren't ruling over themselves, were they? But they had a piece of the pie. They had a bit of authority, and they could work with that. They had their own reasons for wanting to watch what people were saying and doing. And then burning in the back of their mind was that they indeed were looking for the Messiah to come. They were aware of God's promises. They were aware of the uncomfortable position that they found themselves in and had for some time. But what if 
someone had a strange new way of proclaiming and doing things? What if someone had a way of heralding a message from God? They wanted to know about it. And John was uniquely different, wasn't he? He set his ministry up in the desert. He was gruffly dressed. He behaved strangely. And he plunged people into the water as some sort of ritual to contractually seal their determination to change their ways. If scriptures haven't said anything about a prophet who was going to submerge people under the water, and they wanted to know why he was doing this. Three times, John denied claims of notable grandeur. He wasn't about to claim to be someone he clearly wasn't. But just because he wasn't the Messiah, it did not mean that he thought he was nobody. John honestly did believe something, didn't he? And he did publicly affirm something, didn't he? He knew something about himself. He knew that he was the one called by God to be a voice. I am a voice of one crying in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. Is anybody familiar with that piece of text that he's quoting? Taken out of the book of Isaiah, out of the 40th chapter of Isaiah, that talks about the anointed one. The king who was coming. God had commanded him to get people ready for someone else. And he baptized them in the waters of repentance for change. The master is coming. And the way must be prepared for him. So that you might receive him, that you might hear him, that you might truly hear his voice. John the baptizer was clear about something that we all need to grab a hold of in our own lives. It's critical to all of us. It's critical that we assess the I am and the I am not of our own identity. John clearly knew who he was. And I guarantee you that it was affirmed by his parents, by Zachariah and Elizabeth, who raised him. I can't imagine that they would have stopped at nothing to tell him about the nature of even his name that God himself gave him. 
I can't imagine that they would have stopped at nothing to talk about the events that surrounded his coming. And I can't imagine that he wasn't affirmed again and again by the traditions and the scriptures that revealed the nature of the person of God and the origins of his own people, of God's own people. All of it filled with identity. And finally, John was affirmed by the very nature of God's Spirit Himself. In fact, it was the angel that revealed that God's Spirit was said to have filled him even from his mother's womb. It's a remarkable thing. In his contributions to the discerning process of clarifying who we are over time, this guy, Frederick Rueger, a celebrated American writer and novelist, said this, There are different kinds of voices calling you all to different kinds of work. The difficulty, it seems, is finding out which is the voice of God rather than the voice of the world around you. Dubner asserts that a good rule to finding this out is finding the kind of work that God usually calls us to is a kind of work that inside of you feels like you must do. And it's a work that the world most needs to have done. You see, they're, they're complementary. The place God calls you to is the place your deep gladness meets with the world's deep hunger. When we were sitting with Naomi in Guatemala, and she was being very honest about all of the challenges that she has to face as a leader. The realities of just her present day and then what she feels God calling her into and leading her into. When she was looking at her own capacity to fulfill the things that she felt that God had for her, she was feeling wanting. She was left feeling wanting. The one burning question that we had for Naomi was, is God called you? Do, you? do you know this with a certainty, Naomi? It's something that we all need to know from deep down inside. It's, it's really when, it, when the push comes to shove and you're trying to consider what, who you are and, and who you're not is, who has God said that you are? Who's, what is, what is he, what does he put in your knower? What does he put in your spirit? What has he affirmed over and over again? Never mind the other voices that are speaking to you, but are you called? Does God in fact call you by name? 
When you pray and you hear the voice of God, do you ever hear him using your name? I do. I usually usually hear David. (laughs) When he's trying to break into some stinking thinking or something that's going on in me, right? David. Now, as wise as this is, Buchner's counsel. And, and, I, and I hear from a, a good many people who will counsel you and, and help you out with your life, and they'll ask you questions. Well, what are the things that brings you joy in life? Do you know that some of the things that bring you the most amount of joy in life can also be some of the most irritating things and challenging things of your life? Have you ever experienced some of that? The things you say, man, this is way bigger than me. But now I assert that some of what Buchner presents bears witness to me the things that I am learning about the pathways in my own life. Like, do you hear me? I am still learning about the pathways of my own life. I have not arrived. And I assert to you that John the Baptist, the baptizer, had arrived, but he did question some of the things that he was discerning when times and things got tough, didn't he? Do you remember when he was locked up in prison and he asked his disciples to go and ask Jesus if, if, if he was the one? go from great, grandiose, amazing revelation, seeing the Spirit of God descending like a dove on the one proclaiming, Behold, the Lamb of God. How do you go from that to, are you, are you the one? What's the disparity that's going on between that? Well, Jesus sent back an answer, didn't he? Go tell him all of the things that you see and hear me doing. Go tell them about the evidence of the works that are taking place with me. Go, go and encourage them with this. As much as I like Buchner's counsel, as much as I herald the day of I'm looking for things and, and get excited about those things that bring me life, and saying, this must be God. Because there are moments in my life when I have this, I was made for this. Have you ever had that feeling in your life? Isn't that an awesome thing? I was made for this. But I must confess to lean heavily into the principles of things that John's life and testimony are presenting for us today. I think, that, I think that we can all agree that it's important that we know the who I am and who I am not. When it comes to understanding who we are, John's story reminds me again that 
John's story, I learned that it's the work of his Holy Spirit and, and the Holy Scriptures themselves that reveal God to us. That these things in concert, they awaken our identity that is inexplicably joined with him, like inseparably joined. You are, are inseparably joined to Him. And I've learned that it's the work of the Holy Spirit to affirm and to reveal His love for us. That is His job. That is His. He, this is what He. Oh, this is what He lives and loves to do. He wants to reveal his love for us. And I'll tell you what, he wants to reveal his love for this world. Finally, I think it's important to acknowledge something here that the scripture didn't even say in this particular text that we read about the guy I certainly alluded to. I think that it's we need to acknowledge the critical role that we have as parents. And the aunts and uncles, maybe just older friends in people's lives to inform and to affirm our children, just, just as we did before we sent our kids and our youth downstairs. We need to see how important that role is. And then as children of parents, I think it's important that we acknowledge both the good and the painful influences that have shaped and influenced so much of our own 